Hey, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is on Patreon. Yeah, if you're one of the people who have been sending us letters saying that you want more Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories in your life, this is your opportunity. Boy, do we love doing this. If we could just do this all the time and not do anything else, well, I guess we would just do this, right? And we'll make it easy and cheap and affordable because we do love it so much. There's two membership tiers right now. The Record Store Kid membership tier is just 5 bucks a month. Uh, get our weekly email update, which we will be launching with our Patreon, and uh, at least one spinoff episode per month. And then we have another tier. It's the Headphone Junkie tier. That's $10 a month, and you get two Two Patreon-only spinoff episodes per month, plus that weekly newsletter. That's simple. That's it. If you want to support the show, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash stories, and we'll throw that link in the notes. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. You know what to do if you want to be part of the show. You just send us a note. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Like this one, I recently read that Bob Mould from Husker Du was on the writing staff for WWF or WWE or something. Is that true? And how did the worlds of rock and wrestling get so intertwined in the first place? Uh Uh-oh. We are headed to prime <laughs> Murdoch territory. Like, I just feel like I could just leave the room, come back in an hour and a half, turn the recorder off. Like, uh, it's so embarrassing. Let me tell you something, brother. It's so, <laughs> it's so embarrassing that I know so much about no, this. Listen, topic. this is why we make a great pair because I will admit up front, I am out of my depth. Pro wrestling was not a world I got immersed in. I knew, like, I oh. think I had some friends who were into it a little bit. It wasn't something we talked about. I just was always aware of it. And like I knew who Hulk Hogan was, right? Like there were these guys that were bigger than life and bigger than the the sport, right? They were they were pop culture icons. But that was partly because he was like doing movies and stuff. Like I was really into the movie Mr. Nanny. Do you remember that movie? That <laughs> was like prime right in my real estate. Like that came out when I was like eight or ten or something. So it was, yeah, I, I know him from so that. Look at our ages, college. We owned a VHS copy of Mr. Nanny, and we would just Hell sit yeah. around and get Freaking hammered and watch Mr. Nanny and laugh our faces off. You were watching this as like a movie. I was, I was watching, watching it for it. real. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was watching it to make fun of him in a tutu, you know, like just Oh my god. Well, and you know what's funny, not to get oh. distracted by this, but you know, they basically remake that concept every couple of years. They take like whoever the action hero or sports figure turned movie star is, and they remake that premise. So they did it with Hulk Hogan in the nineties. They've done it with The Rock. They've done it with Vin Diesel. Mm-hmm. They do it. They just every few years they do it again. There was one with Dave Bautista a few years ago, like during the pandemic that me and my kids loved, called My yeah. Spy. That's on Amazon. I highly recommend it. I mean, yeah. So there's the kids part of this, right? But then as an adult, I uncover regularly lots of grown people who either had a real affection for, or in many cases have carried that affection into adulthood for professional wrestling. Once I turned like 18 and I was away from home and there were girls, like I dropped pro wrestling. Okay. <laughs> sure you did. Sure I, you did. I did. But I was a dork. I didn't play sports, Brian. And you you were too. Right. But my parents got cable before everyone oh, else. Thank, you don't Thank understand. them for that, right? Like what a blessing. I, and I had a v- VCR that you could record shit on. You have no idea the things that I, we would sit around in my house and watch <laughs> with like tons of dudes in, in my house when I was by myself. And at that time, at 81 to 82, USA 
had a, a Friday night Madison Square Garden card, and it was raw. There was no, no, none of the like, mm-hmm. Brian, coming up in just a minute, we're going to hear from Zeri Zubisco. You know, it's like, nope. It was like the raw footage, like you'd hear oh. the bell and you knew that like, okay, next match is about to start. And so I saw Jimmy Snuka, Superfly, jump off the top of a steel cage onto Don Morocco. Like I saw that on TV and that like, <laughs> that was the thing that I couldn't believe that I saw. And there literally is, if you can catch the video or just a still pick of it, if you can see when he's on top of the yeah. steel cage yeah. and does the uh, the Hawaii thing, the I love you thing. The amount of cameras that went off all at once, it was like, wow, this is so amazing. Do you know that I learned about ELO, about Jeff Lynn, <laughs> about freaking Jeff Lynn from a promo video from from Rock and Roll is King. It was Rock and Roll is King. And the Rock and Roll Express had a video and it would just have them like, going into the ring and then beating the crap out of everybody with that song, you know, but let's listen, listening to that song isn't helpful. It's in the show notes. So, um, and there's another one, there's another one in the show notes I put because I'd never seen it before. It's Jake, the snake Roberts and, uh, a guy named Nord, the impaler, I think is his name. And it's lay it down by rat, just the entire cut. So that's in the show notes too, you know, to the, the letter, you know, cutting to the chase, part of the answer to his, question is yes sort of i it feel wasn't... like most of our answers are yes yeah, sort of <laughs> yes sort of that's pretty it's much the, easy the, way out that's the second line of this podcast right we're bedtime stories yeah sort of he wrote for something called the w wcw which is world championship wrestling do, okay. you, do you even know what that is man it's uh, so interesting i don't hit me so so tbs wtbs which as a kid i only knew about the cubs and the braves because i had like wgn in chicago and okay. wtbs in atlanta yeah and on TBS, like that's Ted Turner's channel, and Ted Turner funded a pro wrestling, uh, uh, like, uh, like promotion. Okay, right. And then it was bought by TBS, which bought the. I'm sorry, this is too much. I mean, there's no way I can make this nerdier. Turner Broadcasting <laughs> bought the 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 rights to the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett Promotions. And what you didn't see for Jim Crockett was. The, the promotions out of there, which it came out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and they toured everywhere. And that was the Four Horsemen and Ric Flair. You're really they, outdoing yourself on knowing all the details to this story. <laughs> I know, I know, but I don't want to get ahead of you myself. You just gave us like seven networks. And well, so here's, here's what I learned from looking through some of this and doing a lot of research around this over the past couple of weeks is that there was a period in history, and we'll get to this, but wrestling was very regional. So that's part of what you're explaining, right? Is that there was yeah. there was regionalized wrestling and the WCW yeah. initially was sort of part of that. Yeah, like Jerry Jarrett had a um a promotion that was from Memphis that toured to Nashville to Louisville. And then uh Fritz von Erich, the von Erichs, all those von Erich kids, like, oh, what a great episode that would be. Um <laughs> they ran Texas. You know, and you had a promotion that was mainly around Florida, Pacific Northwest. And it was it was just broken off that way. So, yeah, let's talk about Bob Mould. Bob Mould, to establish this for the question, did write for a wrestling company, but it wasn't the ones that the letter mentioned. So, perfect. We got that. Now, let's yeah. talk about Husker Du, which I'm excited about because we've not gotten to do that on the show before. St. Paul, Minnesota. 1979 in the Twin Cities. Killer year. Uh, because... Put St. Paul to the side for a second. Over in Minneapolis, you've got that Aerosmith cover band, Dog Breath, that uh, 
starts playing punk rock and changes their name to the impediments. And do you know why they're not called the impediments anymore? Why? Because they got kicked out of a venue because they were so rowdy. And to get that venue to rebook them, they changed their name again. And and they changed their name to the replacements. And that, oh, oh my God, that's the <laughs> best story ever. So, but we're not here. Unfortunately, oh. we're not here to talk about the replacements, even though you and I could do that without a script for a while. And, and can I, and do you know that there there was a local band when I went to college in Knoxville, and they're called the Rude Street Peters, and they would get banned from a venue, and then they would try to book themselves as the the Rude Street Chili Peppers, and. <laughs> That's what they did. It was like, really, I'd see the flyers sometimes and like, what the hell does that mean? They stole it from the replacements, man. Uh, So across from the replacements over in the, across the river, because that's how it's set up, the Twin Cities, over in St. Paul, there's this hardcore punk band and it features a guy named Bob Mould, Grant Hart, and a guy named Greg Norton. And they start as like being a straight up hardcore punk band and then they mellow out and they also will become alt-rock forefathers. They're propelled by this record deal they get with Greg Ginn from Black Flag on SST yeah. Records. Yeah. And then there's eventually this whole period where they get a major label deal. So, you know, back in the 80s, we called that selling out. Uh, they put out a record on Warner Brothers. Ultimately, none of that goes very well. But it puts them on, you know, like in the late 80s, they played the Today Show. Husker Du is a band that's uh, making its name known around these parts and nationally, too. And Bob Bull, why don't you do the introduction to the other two members? For me? uh, myself, Bob, the guitar player. This is Grant Hart, our drummer, vocalist, <laughs> co-songwriter. Greg Norton, bassist, vocalist, and also songwriter. For I'm band. not going to try to no. assign a label. Yeah, yeah, they did. Ultimately, there's a bunch of creative tensions. The There's a suicide uh, of their yeah. manager, not of one of the guys. And Grant Hart has a heroin addiction. It's just, it's rough. So they, they break up in 88. Basically, you need to know that most music heads will say, though, that without Husker Du, we get no Nirvana. Yeah. We get no Pixies. And I also saw, and this has come out like somewhat recently, that when Nirvana was looking for a producer for Nevermind, Bob Mold's name was in the conversation. Oh, that's totally bizarre. And you know, Kurt wanted to make a Pixies record. Like he was right. inspired by that. So think about you know, think about that succession of time. You can see how this might seem a little strange if we are throwing away around names like Nirvana and the Pixies, and then we're also saying that one of these guys who influenced those bands would go on to write plot lines for wrestling. Uh <laughs> I, it, is, I, it, it is weird. It's weird. It's amazing. He has an amazing uh, career, though. Bob Moult does. He just really does it his way. It's very, like, of all those people and of all those bands, he had sort of the most authentic to the scene sort of career, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, he just goes and starts putting out solo records, and he builds this very rabid fan base sort of before the internet exists, and, it's, and that fan base still exists. It then starts another band called Sugar. That's my entry point. Yeah, it was just college radio. I walked okay. in, and that was that was on there. And then I went backwards... 
um, and heard Husker Du. And then in the 90s, I saw him. And it was like, it was just him with an acoustic guitar. And it was like metal, like metal AF. Like it was just full on, just loud and great. Well, and I, so my powerful. entry point was Solar Records. And I could not get over how melodic, how good his songwriting is. Yeah, it's very different than what I expected when I heard mm-hmm. heard them at the first time. So here's what happens with Bob. So he gets tired of touring, like at the end of the 90s, and he wants a break. And so he gets himself a gig writing for the WCW. And there's a piece in New York Times Magazine in 2002. It's in the show notes. I'm just going to read from it for a minute. This is him talking. I always dreamed of working in professional wrestling, and that's what I did as a writer. I've been a lifelong fan. I just love the theatrics. And when I was in Minneapolis and playing in Husker Du in the early 80s, I got to be friends with people in the business and occasionally worked at spot shows as the ring announcer or the timekeeper. What is this? I didn't know this. Gosh. Back then, all the bands were into wrestling. Minneapolis was a real hotbed. Jesse Ventura was the number one bad guy, and Hulk Hogan came in. And that was where Hulk Hogan got his character together in the early 80s as the number one good guy in the territory. Jesse used to hang out with us at the punk rock club. In those days, he looked very punk rock. Just imagine that for a moment. Uh, We were pretty tight with Jesse Ventura, actually. We used to go to his gym. Fast forward up through the late 80s, I wrote for a wrestling fanzine and got to know some people down in Atlanta when Ted Turner bought a wrestling organization for his flagship TBS, which you were just talking about. Yeah. On and off for 10 years, I would feed ideas to them. Finally, they called me and asked me to work there full-time as a script consultant. It was the best offer anyone ever made me. And then he goes on. The first afternoon I was there, they sat me down in a room with Hulk Hogan, and he was like, nice to meet you, brother. What you got? (laughs) 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 And and this is is how Bob finishes that story. It's like my whole life was waiting for this moment. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. This is a guy who broke alternative rock music and sitting next to Hulk Hogan is the moment that he defines as the the ultimate moment in his life. He'll go on to say, the closer you get to it, the less phony it is. Wrestling is the most dangerous thing I've ever been around in my life. Every night, invariably, somebody would get clobbered with a chair and it's like, get the Novocaine, shoot him in the head, 25 stitches, and he's good to good as new in the morning. Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> So he doesn't do this for that long. Eventually, he has some issues with other writers and he'll return to music and he he still tours to this day. It's kind of impressive, emotional, overwhelming, like just hearing him play, like for sure. Well, and he's a punk rocker who will later come out as openly gay, which is also not something that you see in punk rock, especially in the 80s. Uh, We hear in that interview from uh, NYT Mag that Bob was always into wrestling, like always into wrestling, even as a a St. Paul punk. But... This leads to the larger question. How did the worlds of rock and wrestling get so intertwined in the first place? Oh my gosh, this is going to be fun. For that, I thought we'd just we'd go back and do some history. And when I say history, I mean real 1800s history. Like, let's just, let's just talk about wrestling for a moment. Uh, you, do you know when wrestling sort of picks up on the historical calendar? It, no, it only picked up for me when I saw it on TV. So how far <laughs> back does it go? It's the Civil War. 
So really, yeah. It, were like, they fixed? Like, did everybody know they were not, fixed? Not at first. It, it oh, turns right. more theatrical, like in the 1890s. But from the 1860s to the 1890s, it was people just whipping on each other. And yes, theatrical. What I mean by that is rigged, or maybe we should say, quote, predecided. Mom. Modified, yeah, yeah. Predecided is the word they use. Yeah, but this happens partly because it just makes it easier to modify and commodify. Like you could put it in a tent and say it's going to happen at seven o'clock and be over at nine o'clock or whatever. Like before, when they would just have wrestling matches, they'd go on forever because it'd be yeah. like, oh no, we're holding to round seventeen. You know, like oh, you won't beat me, Billy. So they needed to <laughs> sort of like bring some structure to it, and that was part of the. It's like a practical reason for making it fixed and then it gets attached to carnival culture and becomes part of sideshows and stuff promoter culture around it pops up in like 1910 ish these are these are rough estimates and then like by 1930 you've got wrestlers creating characters and personas and in 1952 there's a guy named vincent j mcmahon who is credited with starting something called capital wrestling corporation and that company actually goes back farther than that because Vince's dad, Jess, was a boxing promoter. And this guy in 1920s New York was putting on shows at Madison Square Garden. And yeah. a lot of people think he helped Vincent launch what becomes Capital Wrestling Corporation. By the early 60s, Capital is going to create their own federation because they get in a dispute with the, the sort of the ruling corporation at the time. Um, the National Wrestling Alliance, which you brought up earlier, and yeah. they call it the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, the WWWF. And so they conduct themselves a little differently in terms of frequency and storytelling. They like sort of change how things are done a bit. By 1970, Vince McMahon has turned this sideshow thing into a sellout big money business. And he gets it on TV, which brings us to the Murdoch household in 1970s Tennessee. But yeah, that's where I pick up. One of the ways that he does this, that he gets it from the 60s into the 70s into the 80s, is on the back of a guy named Lou Albano. I don't even know what to say, man. You know, the first time I saw him on TV, I was like, why does that guy have like rubber bands all over his face? Because none of that makes sense to like an eighth grader. It really like it doesn't eight, make eight sense to anyone. It doesn't make sense to anyone. So No, that was his gimmick. Lou Albano grows up thinking he's going to be a boxer, but there's a problem. He's short. And boy, he is. Yeah, I mean, not good for boxing. So there's this family friend who intros him to the guy who ends up stepping in as the first president of the WWWF. And that guy will convince him that wrestling makes more sense because of his size. And Lou will take that advice. But he's never great as a wrestler. There's a point where he is part of a duo where he plays into his Italian heritage and does some real like racist tropes about being in the mob and stuff. That works sort of for him. But what he's really good at and what they figure out when they have him at these matches is he's really good at running his mouth. And right. so, so eventually McMahon and his people are like, well, it makes more sense to put him in a role where he can just run his mouth all the time. And so that means he gets to be a manager. And for those of you who don't know, because like, I don't know, like modern day wrestling, I don't really know if they have them at all. But they're the if in the 2023 definition, it's like it's the, the specific wrestling hype person. You know, it, it's they they even like, you know, 30 40 years ago, they actually booked gigs for them. 
and they were generally ex wrestlers. They were like older guys, but the, the, the people I like to think of is Paul bearer, which has the best name. And he was the undertaker's manager. And then JJ Dillon, who was the manager of the four horsemen and Ric Flair. Okay. Um, yeah, those, that's like what a manager does. And so are they typically for good guys or bad guys or both? They can be for both, but the, I think they really are effective and are, they're more memorable as bad guys because when they're doing the the promo and they're like, well, let me tell you something, brother, we're coming down to Louisville this weekend. <laughs> they're doing all the things. If you got a manager to to talk, to, to throw shade and, and throw some heat at people, like it, it makes the promo go easier because you only have to talk half his time. <laughs> so they, this is why Lou makes his, his name. He becomes one specifically for heels. It starts with this guy, Oscar Crusher Verdu. Do you did you know that name? No, no. So he's he's not around for very long, but he's the first guy that Lou gets to quote unquote manage, and they actually just assign him to him for practical reasons because Oscar is from Spain and does not speak English very well, and so let's let this loudmouth American talk all the smack for him, and it has the desired effect. It it riles people up, and people start showing up for these matches in person. Uh, to see the WWWF, and they start selling out and making money. And Lou becomes this sort of manager for different people over the next 15 years. I mean, it's yeah. Captain Lou Albano. There was a famous guy, I think it was NWA, who was Nikolai Koloff. I think that was his name. He played football for the University of Nebraska, like somewhere, no, somewhere right in the middle of the country. Um, and he went out of college and became a pro wrestler and had to pretend he couldn't speak English. And so Ooh. he stuck with it all the time, like in the gym, you know, when he went out. And so he had, you know, he had a manager just like Captain Lou. Captain Lou? I haven't thought about this guy in forever. So how does Captain Lou get us to rock and roll? That's the million dollar question. It's funny because the first step he takes into rock and roll is not into the mainstream of rock and roll where he will end up. It's, It's on the fringes. And that brings us back. I had no idea this is where we were headed when we got this letter. That brings us back to Louisville, Kentucky. What? How? How? The the connection is a couple of brothers named Terry and Don Adams. They start a band at their house that they refer to as, quote, the New Rhythm and Blues Quartet, Quintet. Oh. And that gets shortened to NRBQ. Shut the front door. Yeah. I, I moved here and didn't know there was another band that's from here I didn't know was from here. But I didn't know that NRBQ was from here. That was something I had no idea. And I kind of felt like... At some point, I kind of felt like they were like a Zappa type band, like they were just a like, musician's musician. They band. are definitely an artist artist for sure. I mean, there are people listening right now who are like, "Wait a second, what? Who is this?" Who is NRBQ? Right. So they have yeah. had this giant effect on pop culture and music, and like somehow stay totally under the radar throughout their history. They have either been name dropped or covered by everyone from Bob Dylan to Paul McCartney, to Elvis Costello, to the aforementioned replacements, uh, even folks like Los Lobos and Bonnie Raitt. And in the late 80s, do you remember this? They tour with R.E.M. Oh, I do remember that because that was a big deal for them. Yeah. There's a lot of reports of Stipe and those guys sitting on the side of the stage watching their sets every night. Like They were very into NRBQ. But they figure out this weird, unique synergy with larger pop culture. And I, I, I don't really think they did it on purpose. I think it was sort of an accident. But up to this present day, you're going to hear their name pop up in random places. They, you know, there's a period of the Simpsons where they were considered the house band? 
Yeah, that's my entryway into NRBQ. <laughs> I was totally serious. Didn't like I was like, huh. I really thought it. I really thought your entry in NRBQ was gonna be Shakes the Clown. No, I totally dig that that movie. Although I I couldn't watch all of it when I tried watching it about last year. I should I should have watched it by myself. Like it's really well, you trying to watch it with watch. people? Yeah, don't watch it with people. Yeah, it was pretty disturbing. But yeah, I didn't I didn't have that. I didn't have that song connected to me, no. So they would, these are the sorts of things they would do in their live shows. They would wear pajamas on stage. They would explode Cabbage Patch dolls. They were just, they were out there. And so with this understanding of their willingness to be wacky, it should come as no surprise that they are considered among the first to open the door to professional professional wrestling and rock and roll. Sock it to me. It's pretty simple. In 1979, they invite Lou Albano to be their manager. <laughs> It's pretty unclear how serious this partnership ever actually was. Did you do you know if he had the shit in his face? Because that's the okay. best. Part. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course he did. It made for amazing output and controversy. The most famous story to come out of this time, and you you might have actually heard this. I might jog your memory. There's this commercial they shoot to promote their 1980 album Tiddlywinks, and there was this other commercial that you have to understand the context. There was another commercial that was being played a lot at the time that was celebrating classical music. And it had this person in like a fancy living room holding up records and talking about how important classical music was. I'm sure you recognize this lovely melody as stranger in paradise. But did you know that the original theme is from the Polovetsian dance number two by Borodin? So many of the melodies of well-known popular songs. And so they make this parody where Lou just is in this fancy setting and he just starts breaking vinyl records and yet like just yelling like he's at a wrestling match about NRBQ being the only music I listen to. You recognize this lovely melody? Well, I don't either. And furthermore, I don't care. The only thing I care about is NRBQ. Round the records. NRBQ. Tillywigs, baby. My kind of music. I love it. I live with it. The premise should be enough on its own that they were like making fun of this commercial. But for a music head, catch this little detail. They shoot this ad at Big Pink. What? They had a friend who had a connection to where Bob Dylan's basement tapes and the band's uh, Big Pink album were were done, and so they actually shoot the commercial. The the living room he's standing in is what? Big Pink. Yeah. The thing about Captain Lou too is that if you you find videos about him, like look up like you know 1982 WWF whatever Lou Albano, and see him. He almost seems like there's no script for him, for Captain. Yeah, I think the they, Captain Lou. Here's a rough idea, Lou. Go yell about this. Like, I don't, there, there's he, no way they script him past he, that. He would move his arms like up and down. Like, I don't know what you describe. Windmilling. Windmilling is what they call that. And I know that because January 18th, 1981, the fucking New York Times runs a review of an NRBQ show. Let me just read it. Lou Albano, a mountainous, manic gentleman who is something like a cross between a television wrestler and a used car salesman, introduced NRBQ at the Ritz on Thursday night. The the Ritz? (laughs) Fucking Ritz. Oh, my God. Oh, here you go. And he periodically stomped around the stage, his arms windmilling wildly while the band played. (laughs) That mental picture is 
amazing. Stop for oh a moment my. and consider the idea of Lou, Lou Albano just windmilling, just like, in general. No, no script. It's like action. Terry Adams from NRBQ says that, talking about this TV commercial, that a TV channel in Boston returned our money after airing it once, calling it, quote, offensive. Next was Saturday Night Live in New York, who sent the commercial back to us without even airing it. Wow. Were they trying to pay for airtime and people were saying no? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is hilarious to me. So obviously this is not the way that he is going to uh, break into the mainstream of rock and roll, right? Like he's on the fringes and people are noticing him, but the mainstream SNL is, is pushing the wrestling away from them. Uh, quick side note before we leave this, they actually put out a whole album together called Lou and the Q in 1985. Did you know I that? Mean, you, you have to kick me in the pants like 16 <laughs> times for this. What? When did they? 19, 1985? In 1985, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just making a note of this so I can believe that this is a thing. But it takes okay. another unlikely candidate to get it across the goalposts, to get it all the way to, I'm really mixing my sports metaphors, to get wrestling all the way into the mainstream and fully embraced by the rock and roll contention, it takes somebody else. Do you remember this band, Blue Angel? Ah, the, the name's familiar, but I can I can't pinpoint it to someone. Who is that? So it features a high school dropout from Queens who had been playing in cover bands. She meets a saxophone player, and they form this group, and they make a demo, and they get a manager, and Polydor Records signs them. It all happens pretty quickly. The end of the seventies, and they get one album out in nineteen eighty, and then they get in a fight with their manager. There's a lawsuit that actually forces the singer into bankruptcy, and she has to go back to waitressing at IHOP. Okay. So while this now waitress is uh, in that band, Blue Angel, she is on a plane with them going to Puerto Rico at one point. And she realizes that the guy sitting next to her seems familiar. And she starts talking to him and realizes it is, yes, the man of the hour, Blue Albano. I, I, oh my God, this is happening. I feel like, I feel like the the Kristen Wiig character who's like just holding the hands over her face. who wants to just <laughs> yell out what she's not supposed to yell out. Well, these two people recognize the oddball on each other immediately, right? Spend the whole plane ride together. They trade numbers and they promise to keep in touch. And meanwhile, it's important to sort of understand what's happening in the early eighties in wrestling. And, and you talked about this. We talked about it at the beginning, right? There's this thing that's happening with regionalization and then nationalization. And all of these independent spots that are that are, have popped up that aren't really connected, but are all perpetuating the same product, but with different players across the country. There's a great book. John Wertheim wrote it. It's called Glory Days, the Summer of 1984, and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. It goes super deep on all the details on this. There's a link to an excerpt that'll get you part of the way there if you want in the show notes. But I'll just crudely summarize the ground shift that is underway by emphasizing that there is a change in leadership happening at WWF. Um, For people that don't know this, there was a Vince Sr. 
right? Because we so got that, Vince that, Jr. That's where we started, though. We started with right. Vince Sr. in 1950. Now, in 1980, there is a sale from father to son happening. Vince McMahon, who we've got now, is that guy. By the way, has anyone seen that guy recently? Just anytime you want, Google image Vince McMahon 2023. Holy Ooh. cow, lawsuit got him terrible. Oh, man. Um, divorce and all the things. So Vince Jr. immediately had this idea that he wanted to take it national because they were just the Northeast. So that what I was watching right. on USA was just Madison Square Garden was kind of like the center of, of their you know, of their territory, really. So if they could get on television and they had like cable networks to play with, which they did with USA, they could kind of squeeze people out. And it's like the only way that made sense to them. And they had that outlet. Uh, Dude, Vince McMahon had a friggin' late night talk show. I forget which night it was on. We didn't really. With with Lord Alfred B. Hayes. (laughs) And you don't know who that is. It doesn't matter. And I've put two two videos in the show notes from it because it's God. unreal. It was like a talk show. There's a roundtable one and warning. What? The second video, which I need to warn everybody, I did put this in the show notes, the warning that Rowdy Roddy Piper slaps the crap out of Lord <laughs> Alfred B. Hayes on this couch like late night set they have. And you can hear how stiff Vince McMahon sounds on a microphone. He was a business guy, right? So, like, if you read a lot about his dad, his dad was a very kind businessman. He was cutting wrestlers in on things, and he was, you know, his son takes over, and it's it's much more ruthless. He's very, oh. he's got this vision for what he wants to achieve, and a lot of guys with vision, the side effect is, you know, they will take down whoever gets in their way. And so, yeah, he's not been the most liked person throughout history, but he's gotten a lot done. And there's a similar thing happening in terms of the relationship between wrestling and television. It's also happening in music at the same time, right? You've got MTV. Yeah. And we talk about Period. the significance of MTV on the show all the time. We're going to talk more about it very soon. Yeah. Uh, right. But That's true. We had to talk about that. <laughs> so there is this marketing strategy now if you're an artist. So instead of you just making a great song and getting radio play, there has to be a visual that goes with it. And any up-and-comer is going to face this at this point. And that applies to this singer from Blue Angel. So she was waitressing again. But she still found time to go out to the bars. And in 81, she's at a bar, and she's singing. And this guy who's there is an up-and-coming talent manager. And he says, I want to be your new manager. Eventually, he will also be her boyfriend. And he gets her a new record deal as a solo artist. It's on like a subsidiary. It's maybe doesn't sound as flashy as Polydor at the time. But he's getting things done, and they get the green light to make a video. They've got a single. They come up with a concept. And the concept includes having two actors who will play the part of that singer's parents. Yeah. And so the singer enlists her own mother, but her mother and father do not get along. So she needs somebody to play her father. And so they're sitting around talking about who they could get to play the father. Right. And there's only one answer. (laughs) And the manager says, Oh, actually I'm going to read from the book. I mentioned glory days, a fan of professional wrestling, David Wolf. That's the name of the manager. Uh (laughs) He has an idea. He says this video could use a cartoonishly over the top figure. One wrestler in particular came to mind. Hey, quote, there's this guy, Lou Albano, the singer nearly did a spit take. 
I know Captain Lou, she squealed, recalling the nice man she'd sat alongside on the flight from Puerto Rico all those years ago. We swapped numbers when we were on a plane together. And that is how Lou Albano ends up in the video to Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper. Wow. You know, it's like I will survive at this point by now, right? You know, oh, to get that? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to know. It's it's bigger than the artist. It's bigger than the time period. Like, yeah. you just, people know, like our daughters know the song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. They have no context but, for it, but it's just out there. Yeah. And maybe because I'm a boy or whatever, but the very first time I saw that video, I was like, holy shit, that's Captain Lou Albano. Like <laughs> no, that's because you're you. That's, why, that's yeah. why you did that. I wasn't like, hey, you know, this is catchy and really a great anthem for women. Like, nah, I just went straight to the guy with all the crap in his face. Well, it, so here's the thing, right? Like, it's not instantaneous that all of a sudden these two worlds merge. It's a, it's a funny stunt that happens, right? That you've got this wrestler who now is going to be in this music video. But because they got to work together and because they already established this rapport when they were on a plane ride together, Lopper and Albano become real friends and they start hanging out, (laughs) which is also a hilarious thing to think about. Yeah. So the story goes that Cindy and and David Wolf would drive to the suburbs and go hang out with Lou and his wife, Geraldine, which is, it's great. It's great. that Geraldine. Geraldine, I love that name. So, and David Wolf is also, I don't know if he's quite the Vince McMahon of the group, but he definitely has a, a an eye and an ear for business. And he sees that there's more potential here. He wants to keep this cross-promotion going. So, he set up a meeting and drove to WWF headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut to strategize with McMahon. He says, let's sit down and talk about, we know this music video worked, what can we do that brings our worlds together. So it's really David Wolf at the center of this. Wow. That's really, and like for me, it took me a long time to find out that he wasn't just her manager, that like actually he was, they were doing stuff like together. (laughs) They're doing stuff. What are we, 14? They were were lovers. They were lovers. Uh, So McMahon is like totally into cross promotion, right? Because this is part of his ethos, right? It's like, how do I get these people in more places. And so he listens to what they have to say and accounts of what follow vary, but we'll stick with wolves. He says he pitches McMahon this idea of what he calls the rock and wrestling strategy. And it's an extensive blueprint for marrying the spandex clad wrestlers with the spandex clad rock stars. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> and of course he's, he, as you've already pointed out, he's doing things with Cindy Lauper at the time. So she's like the central figure. We, we do this with Lauper first. And so one of the ways he says they'll do this is, Hey, Cindy's supposed to go on Johnny Carson. I'll make sure she brings up pro wrestling. This is like how I'll prove it to you. And so, she does it. She goes on Johnny Carson. She talks about how she loves pro wrestling. And this is Wolf's next big idea. Let's put on a show at Madison Square Garden in the summer of 84. MTV will broadcast the event. It's weird. It's bizarre. It's off brand. It's also a Monday night. So they have very little to lose. And so this is after months of cross-promotion and Cindy Lauper showing up in matches that are happening 
at random, there's a building storyline and it culminates July 23rd, 1984. They call it the brawl to end it all. Did you watch this when it happened? Well, what I remember, and I'm, I don't know if I'm just senile at this point, but they had part of the card on MTV, but they didn't have it all on. So right. I don't know so if, they had, the, they had the, the end. So the last match is the, is the brawl to end it all. It's like the Kentucky Derby, right? Like a lot of people don't know this. The Kentucky Derby is like eight races. It's the Royal Rumble. That's what it is. Like right. that's what they can call it now, whatever. But I did have a subscription to Pro Wrestling Illustrated, so I knew everything that had happened at the Brawl to end it all. That is really the freaking truth. Um, and so this was the big event before WrestleMania. You know, it, can it was I ask the you highest, what, ha- wait, rate. what, what? happened to all those pro wrestling magazines? Did you keep them? How long did you keep them? Um, I didn't keep them super long. Do you have any of them? I, no, I, God, I wish you had light. one. I wish you had one. I know you got rid of CDs. Like, like, why would I think that you've kept your pro wrestling magazines? But yeah, man, it baseball, would be pretty cool. I mean, how many baseball cards did I have at one point? Who, <laughs> who the hell knows? Like, dude, I, I had a worked, hot Nolan Ryan collection. I had like ninety Nolan Ryan cards. That's a true story. Yeah, yeah I had a uh, I had a Nolan Ryan rookie card. I mean, what? You know, it's like just name it. Like I did stuff. I got, you know, people I mean, tune in next week and it's just, it's just a baseball card podcast. It's me and you being like, man, one time I had seven Aussie Smiths. Yeah. <laughs> what did remember you have? The Don, remember when the Don Mattingly 84 Donruss card was worth $400 uh, and he's such a worthless baseball player. Listen, I got a cousin that works for upper deck. We could take this places. This could be yeah. the spinoff pod that nobody wants. Brian and Murdoch talk unintelligently about baseball cards. Do you, do you know? So that was the highest rated program. On MTV, including it beat the ratings for whatever the ratings were when they unmasked Kiss in 83 with J.J. Jackson. I totally watched that live. And that was totally (laughs) when you watch it now, it's totally freaking weird. Then he Vincent on guitar with them. So you bring up. Anyway, we need to go back to it. No, you bring up a great point. You bring up a great point, which is that this is a period where MTV is trying to figure out who it is. And this is a giant moment because they figure out this idea of cross-promotion in new audiences. They, they hadn't really figured out a couple years in exactly who they were yet. And so they were willing to try some things. And this helps bring in this whole other audience. Um, the rating success of the brawl to end it all caught the eyes of other networks so it becomes a litmus test people can point to that people will watch this and within months four of the country's top 10 cable shows were devoted to professional wrestling that's yeah. how big a moment this was and that's a, it was fucking Cindy Lopper and her manager that made this happen it was on USA and they started then all of a sudden you went from these just raw footage from the cards to where you had uh, it was Gorilla Monsoon and Mean Gene Okerlund like doing the commentary. If it wasn't Vince and Lord Alfred B. Hayes. <laughs> Dude, it was a weird goofball band from Louisville and a 30-year-old bar singer from Queens who was taking one last wing at stardom. I mean, that's the other thing. The Blue Angel story is so important to this because Cindy Lopper's 30 when she puts out Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So think about that for a moment. Oh, I didn't know she was 30. Gosh. This was her, this really, she really thought of this as her last chance. Not only is it her last chance, as a 30-year-old, she gets Lou Albano to play her dad in a music video, right? Like, we think of her as, like, a young person, but she's not that young at that point. I didn't know she was 30. That's crazy. And so, 
it's those weirdos who are basically putting all their chips on the table who are able to see the vision, take the chance, not be so precious about everything, and in the meantime, basically make this well, they made they made Vince McMahon Jr. a, a very rich man. Yeah. <laughs> That's really oh, what yeah. they did. And he's about to sell it. I'm like they're in the process of selling it finally, right? Yeah, to like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or something <laughs> just awful. Some <laughs> terrible, awful garbage, so, whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know, but it doesn't sound like it's a great move for us. <laughs> Sports Illustrated summarized the effect of this partnership like this. Quote, this is a little crude, but it's worth reading. Knuckle draggers who traditionally made up wrestling crowds have been booted out of the bleachers and replaced by Wharton graduates. And Jerry Lawler, hey, you know, good well wishes out to Jerry Lawler. I think he's fallen ill in the last week or so. He, uh, I saw a thing, it was, uh, I guess it was Tales from the Territories on Vice, you know, and, and he said that, you know, every week they had to get new storylines and the idea was to get, you know, Get those hillbillies really damn mad at them, you know, or like, you know, get people real angry or excited or whatever. But do you remember after all of this, before wrestling became controversial about steroids and everything, or whether it's entertainment or real, Sports Illustrated put Hogan on the cover. But anyway, yes, Bob Mould wrote for WCW. True. <laughs> this is where we land. If you've got a question for us, uh, we'll take you know, almost an hour to answer it. All you have to do is send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. And what should people keep doing until next time? Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.